Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today we are continuing the Seeing Like a State book club type series, and I have another new guest, Tura. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Wait, no, you're the only one here. But hello, (laughs) audience, I am here. So uh, we're actually doing chapter three and four today, uh, because chapter three is only like 11 pages. And I realized that when I was probably three quarters of the way through it and I messaged you and I was, I was actually suggesting we just do part of chapter four, but, um, I think, I think this will work out better. Um, yeah, we could have done just part of it, but the part of chapter four that I'm most interested in is the very end. So I'm glad it worked out this way anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, so chapter three is called. Uh, authoritarian high modernism, I think. That's what I wrote down anyway. Yep. And uh, so he starts talking about the philosophy of high modernism, which, uh, as he says, is given force of will by a highly centralized state, which is, you know, kind of a a new thing, historically speaking. We didn't have such, like, massive, powerful states prior to the modern era. And so it's, I think it's a pretty unique, um set of conditions combined with the philosophy that's used to drive it he notes that pre-modern states had uh the modest ambition of extracting wealth for their upper class and fighting wars and little else but in the modern era we saw breakneck revolutionary change in human techniques including steam power power looms mass manufacture of steels railroads electric lights i would add like you know chemistry um flight just tons of stuff and yeah i was gonna say uh so much of that was over the course of like a single human lifetime it's just all of this progress all at once right and and because of exactly that scott points out that it would have been hard to live during that time and not be a modernist by the time you're you know older because you would see like all these totally crazy changes that were just unprecedented i think this is actually captured really well in uh one of my favorite recent anime demon slayer uh there's a an episode where the main character tanjiro goes to like a new city that has electric lights and it's nighttime and he's like the big cities have come a lot further than i expected it's nighttime but it's so bright out the buildings are so tall what's the deal Incredible and overwhelming. This is making me dizzy. And there's uh, another episode where Inosuke, who's like a super like country bumpkin kind of guy, he sees a train for the first time and he thinks it's a monster and starts attacking it. Such an intimidating size. There's no mistaking it. It looks like it's asleep, but don't let that fool you. It's a train. You've never seen one. Put down, or you'll wake it. I'll lead the charge to take it down. Inosuke, stop. This might be the guardian spirit of this land, so we shouldn't be attacking it carelessly. Uh, I said it's a train. You've never seen one either? But anyway, so... 
Uh, Scott identifies three characteristics that he says led to many of the like massive scale atrocities of the 20th century. Um, and I'm just going to quote directly from him. Uh, number one is the the aspiration to the administrative ordering of nature and society, an aspiration we have already seen at work in scientific forestry. So going back to chapter one with um, the normal bounds. Number two is the unrestrained use of the modern state as an instrument for achieving these designs. And number three is a weakened or prostrate civil society that lacks the capacity to resist these plans, which um, that is like a pretty, uh, I think it's a pretty interesting schematic of a lot of 20th century atrocities. Yeah, it is. It's interesting that like the prostrate civil society often goes hand in hand with like the strongest military force that the country has ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, so the people on an individual level are often like more armed and powerful in that sense than they've ever been, but in the relevant sense, they're weakened and it's the state that wields that power, not the people themselves. That's a really good point about the, the militaries, because I don't think everyone realizes that like standing armies are like really new. Like, as far as I know, uh, most armies historically, were basically like created through conscription. Like you would, you would have like a warrior class that was persistent, but the majority of the like foot soldiers would be peasants that were, um, what's the word? This is why I need to play more, uh, <laughs> crusader Kings. <laughs> yeah. I would know I this a, word. <laughs> did a history on ancient Rome course at one point and like all these terms were around, but it's been years. I don't know. Levies. That's it. Okay. Levies. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, uh, from everything that I've read, uh, in pre-modern history, most armies were created through levies, which were, you know, conscriptions of peasants kind of facilitated by the lords, um, of, you know, various manners. They would have like an obligation to, um, you know, a higher level of, um, higher level of lord, I guess, and uh, they would have to conscript a certain number of peasants um, from their anyway. local land holdings. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so continuing, he says uh, there's a certain current of utopianism that led to many of the great state-sponsored calamities of the 20th century. Uh, the first example that he gives kind of weird is uh, Nazi Germany, which he calls the diagnostic example. I mean, I guess there's, uh, yeah, I guess it is utopian in a really like evil way. <laughs> it's just, it was just kind of off-putting to me. I don't know about you. When I read that, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I would put that first, but. Yeah, I don't know. It was utopian in a different sense, but there definitely was that undercurrent or um, maybe not undercurrent aesthetic more of the great. Uh, fatherland of the master race that will rise following the war. Um, and so there was sort of this utopian aspiration to it. It just didn't make any pretensions to offering that to more than a very small group of people. And it was also kind of more like a like revanchist or like um, aspiration to like restore a past that didn't exist, right? Like that's right. one of the major elements of fascism is they create this like mythological history that that they've had taken away from them, and that's what they're seeking to restore. Whereas, like when I think utopianism, I think looking to the future 
creating something that has never existed before. Yeah, I think of it as sort of a, a bright future where uh, everything is better and everyone's happy and fulfilled, um, which mm-hmm. is not something that they were going for. But yeah, I think a better example to me, we are, we mentioned this in I think in the first chapter episode or the second chapter episode, um, the like four great pests uh, where yeah. they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to get rid of, you know, all these things that have been plaguing us for centuries and. It was a really <laughs> like kind of utopian project, but it was very uh, detrimental, you know, when it actually happened. But I don't know. I guess not worth like fighting about because he moves on pretty quickly from this. So mm-hmm. he also lists as examples of these calamities. Number one, social engineering under apartheid South Africa. And I meant to look up most of these, but I, I didn't end up having time. Um, modernization by the Shah of Iran. Uh, number three, villagization in Vietnam, which I did look up. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that after this list. And four, uh, huge projects in late era colonialism, such as the Gazira scheme in Sudan, which that one actually, uh, I don't know why I didn't look that one up because that sounds the most interesting to me. Maybe just because it's a word I've never heard before. <laughs> Do you know anything about that? Yeah. By chance? No, I think I've heard the name Gazira scheme thrown around. Um, but I have no more detail than that. Oh, it looks like it's a huge like irrigation project. Cause, oh, uh, okay. yeah, it says irrigation canals of the Gazira scheme from space. It, it actually looks kind of cool. Post it in the general chat, but, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the villagization real quick. So, uh, villagization is actually just a general euphemism for forced resettlement. Like it's happened in a ton of places. Um, and I think what he's referring to is called the Strategic Hamlet Program, which was something the South Vietnamese government did in an attempt to isolate rural Vietnamese from the Viet Cong and basically stop the spread of communism. So they started by identifying and training self-defense forces uh, in various villages who would have the job of enforcing curfews checking identity cards and rooting out communists um and the other part of the project is attempting to consolidate sixteen thousand of vietnam's villages which that's a crazy number into just twelve thousand. so they basically were trying to like force everyone to leave their home and move into a smaller number of villages to make it easier to manage them and keep communism from taking over um yeah, higher density, more order, easier policing. We'll get to that. Yeah. Um I'm yeah, it's it's been a while since I studied Vietnam War stuff, but like the US military is pretty well known for having committed a whole whack of atrocities to the locals while they were there. And mm-hmm. what's interesting about it is a huge proportion of those like the aggressive uh brutality and killing of babies and raping of women and that kind of thing that happened wasn't to the North Vietnamese. It wasn't to their enemies. It was to these people in South Vietnam, who they were ostensibly on the side of, through these kinds of uh, coercive projects that put people in close groups and then put a massive spotlight of uh, surveillance and interrogation on everyone to stop the communism from spreading. Yeah, so they they carried out um, Operation Sunrise, uh, which was the name for the forced relocation program it began in March 1962 in Bunyong province, 
which is uh, an area with a particularly strong Viet Cong presence, which like um, they had advisors that were like, don't start there. <laughs> that's the worst possible place he could start because that's like the Viet Cong stronghold. Uh, you should start in a place with like low sympathies, but they, they did that anyway. Uh, USAID sponsored the operation by giving each family that was forced out of their homes uh, a uh, reparation of $21 for the land that they lost. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, so the South Vietnamese army initially forced 210 families to leave. And according to records, so it might have been worse than this, 140 of those 210 families were forced at gunpoint. Um, and the practice continued through the end of April. The operation was extremely unpopular, obviously due to the willing unwillingness of families to leave their homes, um, but also because the army was like killing civilians that were too resistant, uh, as well as Viet, like suspected Viet Cong. And also, when they forced the people out of their villages, they burned them down. Um, in fact, it was so unpopular that even U.S. soldiers sympathized with the villagers. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So they kicked them out of their homes and then did scorched earth yes. on the way back? Mm-hmm. Wow. In Against the Grain, Scott's other book, he talks about forced relocation in that sense actually being very common historically. If a state wanted to get a large subjugated workforce, they would do exactly that. They would force people out of their homes and destroy their homes so they couldn't go back to them. And move them somewhere else where they weren't as familiar and would therefore be easier to control. Um, wow. Yeah. But I guess in this case, it was just to stop the spread of communism, not to get a forced labor yeah. group. It's a good um, thing that uh, forcing terrible material conditions on people in order to get them to join the military more readily doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So back to the book. Uh, revolutions and colonies, according to Scott, are particularly susceptible to authoritarian high modernism um, in revolutions because the Ancien regime has been overthrown, which leaves civil society prostrate, and the revolutionaries have popular mandate to make sweeping changes. And then in colonies, for fairly obvious reasons, you know, the old society has been uh, conquered by colonizers and uh, I don't think he mentioned this explicitly, but I, I think it's a fairly straightforward conclusion that like the in-group, out-group dynamics of colonizer and colonized means a high willingness to experiment on the colonized population. Um, so they're willing to make sweeping changes on behalf of the people they've conquered. Um, so he then raises an obvious question, which is, where did authoritarian high modernism originate? And he speculates that it's the German engineer Walter Rathenau, who was chiefly responsible for the power of the German army in World War I. Um, so he created huge logistics networks and a meticulously planned economy to provision the army, which to most onlookers, uh, they expected the army to run out of steam very quickly. Oh, I also put ha 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 when I said steam because steam power. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so he says the intellectual current springing from Rathenau manifested in two more familiar trends traditions, uh, that kind of still persist today. One was the American tradition of Taylorism, 
where production processes were deconstructed into discrete, simple actions that resembled what we think of as a machine and were tweaked or rearranged for ease of management and um, productive efficiency. And then the other was the European field of energetics, which conceived of work as a series of energy flows and reduced the many real differences in workers to an undifferentiated abstract worker. And uh, when I tried to look this up, I couldn't find anything. And you, uh, you figured out that they were talking about ergonomics. Yeah, at one point he says that they're the same or energetics is called ergonomics sometimes. I think that's in the next chapter about Lenin. But yeah, it's this... There's a couple different traditions there. Um, some of it comes from American thinkers, but Scott looked it in uh, Europe at the time. Yeah, it was confusing too because right after this he... He's talking about their traditions, and he he mentions technocracy, which is also American, and he puts it next to Taylorism. Yeah, that's right. So he says, um, the ruling class of the late 19th and early 20th century, no matter what their other beliefs, universally subscribe to the ideologies of Taylorism and technocracy. Um, and I don't know about you, but I think it's still the case in the U.S., uh, at least for technocracy. Like, every everything to the like statesmen that compose the U.S. government, they kind of treat everything as like an apolitical technical problem. Yeah, just something to, you get a study done, you do some research, get some good evidence-based practice, and everything's supposed to just flow from there. Yeah, task forces and et cetera. <laughs> yep. If we, have, if we have the right amount of means testing, then, you know, welfare will just become super efficient and... We won't have to worry about people being left behind or imaginary budget problems that don't actually exist. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, here he mentions Lenin, uh, who was initially opposed to Taylorism and called it the exploitation of sweat and later became an enthusiastic supporter of it, seeing its improvements of the productive forces as the basis for socialism. Which, you know, of course, yeah. socialism was about making stuff, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, the development of productive forces and th that sort of Marxist teleology that requires society to progress through its stages and develop enough before it can move on. Um, right. I mean, it's pervasive. So then later on, and I think it's later on, whenever um, Scott talks about the Russians planning the economy and getting into their the Bolshevik congresses to figure out how to run their factory system and all that, you're, you're split. You're either a Taylorist or you're an ergonomist or uh, energeticist, I guess is what he said. Um, and there, there's no option for people not being viewed as sort of mechanical devices to be solved at a technical level. And I wonder if that's just like kind of an effect of statecraft at a high level. Like it's kind of impossible to, I don't know, maybe it's not impossible, but it's unlikely if you're kind of controlling millions of people from on high, it doesn't really uh, bode well for thinking that people are people and not like little parts of a really elaborate machine to be managed. Right. It's yeah. I mean, if you're going to manage the people from the perspective of a state, something about seeing them that way, legibility, what are we talking about again? <laughs> <laughs> 
So he uh, Scott ends the chapter with saying he won't discuss every obstacle to high modernism, but does specifically mention liberal democracy. This, I think, is the most liberal he's gotten in the book so far. Yep. Yep. So he says there are three reasons that liberal democracy is resistant to authoritarian high modernism. One is belief in the existence of a private sphere of society that the state cannot legitimately interfere in, uh, which is not the same as the private sector. It's referring to like personal life, sexuality, family, etc. Yeah, the government doesn't belong in the bedroom or whatever. Yeah, which I mean, it does, obviously. I don't know what he's talking about. That's lib shit. <laughs> Two is uh, belief in the independence of the private sector, which should be free not only because it like deserves to be, but also because... It's simply not possible for a state, as in government, to manage such a complex sphere of activity without causing catastrophe, which didn't stop some from trying. Yeah. When I read this, I thought he was being kind of like sarcastic or, you know, not really agreeing with them. But I think after the next chapter, he probably actually does agree with that um, to a degree, at least. And uh, so three is the existence of working representative institutions through which a resistant society could make its influence felt. Um, And later he explains it. The freedoms of speech of assembly and of the press ensure that widespread hunger will be publicized while the freedoms of assembly and elections in representative institutions ensure that it is in the interest of elected officials, self-preservation to prevent famine when they can. So he's talking about how like, um, Famine is one of those things where um, liberal democracy prevents it, which I think I agree with that the least because like the USSR stopped having famines after Holodomor, but I don't think you'd classify it as a liberal democracy. Yeah, no, I I read that as like, if they do take action or fail to take action, uh, your representatives don't stop the famine then you can vote them out and replace them with people who are more invested in stopping famine. Um, And so in that sense, seeing this as sort of a check that the people can place upon the liberal democracy, um, or at least the elected officials. So if any of those representatives were committed high modernists who wanted to just plow through and be hardline authoritarian status, they would be voted out if there was a famine. That's, That's the premise. I don't know how much I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's a little crazy. I mean, like, we could use George W. Bush as an example, who did plow through all these, like, crazy oppressive measures after 9-11 and got reelected. <laughs> no <Right>. problem. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to believe that this sort of system of checks and balances that supposedly exists in liberal democracies, like, how you can live under one for all these years and like you don't have to go far back in history it's just how long you have lived uh, under the system as it exists and think that those checks and balances work and that it's going to stop the supposedly elected representatives from uh you know just doing what they want and making their own interests uh the priority yeah i mean this wasn't long after reagan who was he was a two-term president right yeah yeah and and to me like the thing that actually stopped famines from happening wasn't liberal democracy it was intensive agriculture and you know industrial production of nitrogen and pesticides which while it does prevent famine uh is also extremely deleterious in a lot of ways 
including depleting topsoil, uh, causing nitrogen loading, which causes like uh, algae blooms and shit like that, and yep. is ecocidal and is basically like causing the collapse of like bird populations and pollinators and all that. So kind of a trade-off. <laughs> if you're looking at it in terms of raw efficiency, we need to do everything we can to stop famines from happening. Then we need to have readily accessible stockpiles of cheaply made food as efficiently as possible. And it's no wonder then that monocropping is what comes up as the solution to that, which mm-hmm. is not a long-term stable thing that will prevent famines. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yeah, it's this weird conflict. Yeah, it's kind of another one of those utopian schemes, isn't it? Yep, it is. All right, so that was that was the end of chapter three. Like I said, very short. So chapter four is the high modernist city, an experiment and a critique. So this is where he gets into some really fine detail about authoritarian high modernism and its effects and limits and all that. This is what Sam was building up to Le Corbusier is like the the main focus of this chapter. So Le Corbusier was an artist and failed urban planner who was active from the 1920s to the 1960s. His early politics, uh, this is a direct quote, his early politics was a bizarre combination of Sorrel's revolutionary syndicalism and Saint-Simon's uh, utopian modernism. And Scott goes on to say that if one needed a caricature of modernist urbanism, you could hardly invent a figure more apt than Le Corbusier. Yeah, I I first read this book on audiobook. um, And so I didn't get to see the drawings that were in the book until recently sort of going back over it to prepare for this. And wow, is the caricature word is right. (laughs) Yeah, I was very surprised uh, when I saw those. I was uh, like, the other figures in this book are like, pretty elaborate like the um cadastral maps are like they look nice even though you know their their purpose obviously isn't um but i feel like the corbusier's drawings kind of suck they're not they're not that interesting to me i don't know about you yeah it looks like some weird piece of concept art for a really boring video game like that's how i saw them <laughs> yeah Especially the the Buenos Aires one, which is just like five rectangles with a line and yeah. some stippling and I, around it. <laughs> and I can I can sort of see this sort of utopian and uh, high modernist vision of viewing things from the sky, that being like um, a better perspective, the top town design of a planner. But why did he think that taking the shot from the perspective of a ship that's way out in the ocean and just seeing a couple rectangles jutting up from the coastline would be like, how is that a good look? I don't understand what he was going for with that. I have no idea. I, I didn't think of this until just now, but I guess I, I have to remind myself, uh, he didn't have access to like drawing software. So he's doing these by hand. So maybe that makes some sense out of how like kind of dull they are, but I don't know. Yes. People have, if he was a trained drawings than that (laughs) prior to this era, (laughs) Right? Uh, no, I think this was what he was going for, was the sort of aggressive, not brutalist, but sort of brusque s- simplicity of his designs. I-, I think it was completely on purpose. Yeah, he is very... I keep thinking simple-minded, which is obviously like a... 
has a different meaning, but like he was so focused on like overly simplifying everything that was, he was yes, obsessed aggressive, with aggressive, aggressive simplification. Yeah. The rectangles, the squares, the 90 degree angles, nothing more complex than that. This motherfucker loves rectangles. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So Scott shows those concept drawings. Uh, one, one is for Paris. That's, I think that's the one that looks the best out of the three, maybe the Rio de Janeiro one, but that one still mostly is just like a road. And I don't really understand where the housing complex is supposed to be. Um, and then the other one is the, a new business city in Buenos Aires. So what Scott finds noteworthy about it is the fact that no accommodation is made for the existing city's land or culture, uh, which is true. Like, you look at the concept drawing for Paris and nothing about it looks like Paris. It just looks like a generic city. Like you said, for a video game, like that, that makes the most sense out of it. Yeah. Actually. It's like, it looks like a completely constructed world that has nothing to do with earth. <laughs> yeah. Scott talks about that. He says like all of his designs are placeless with no regard for like the context or history of where they come from. And so any of his designs, if you're looking at um, what he planned for Paris, um, it could be anywhere. It, it doesn't matter that it's mm -hmm. Paris. He doesn't care of what Paris was. In fact, he would more than uh, happily raise the entire existing city to the ground and build his new plan entirely on an artificial constructed flat plot of land. Didn't it say at one point that like he actually was rejected? I think it was for the uh, the Soviet city. He was rejected by... Uh, the government, and then he like took the same drawing and just removed any references in the description to Russia and brought it somewhere else and was like, yeah, I got this cool design for your city. <laughs> yeah, um, that was, he had a plan. I think it was for St. Petersburg. It was either St. Petersburg or Moscow, one of the big urban centers. Uh -huh. um, didn't go through. And then that plan became his model for Paris in, what was the book called? Um Shining City, La Ville Radieuse. That's what it was. Oh, and the other thing that Scott notes um, is that they're designed to have imposing forms, but only when seen from the vantage point of a ship or an aircraft or like, you know, a helicopter, basically from like an administrator's view, someone who didn't live in the city. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, though, to me, his understanding of what a city is in the abstract is like kind of accurate. Um, I mean, it's obviously very reductive, but like he correctly identifies the authoritarian state centered purpose of a city and like the fact that it's like a site of command where, you know, orders radiate from the government and business districts to like commercial districts, suburbs and outlying rural areas. Um, but because it's a human living space, it's also a site of like sociality, culture, and spontaneity, which he conspicuously does not understand and hates. Um, yeah. And you get the whole dynamic where basically all of the high modernist state uh, or city designing projects that actually were constructed, almost all of them were themselves administrative centers. They were built by the yes. state for the state. Now, if Le Corbusier had his way, he would have done that to every damn city. Um, so it wasn't right. limited just to like explicit state purposes, but yeah, I don't think it's an accident that the ones where this most happened were the ones that were explicitly for the state's purposes. 
No one's a worker. Everyone's an administrator. We all just administrate yep. each other. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun, I guess. Um, so yeah, his, his authoritarianism was like extremely overt and superseded any other political alignments he may have had. So I'm going to quote, uh, I don't, I won't read the whole thing, but, uh, I'll read a good amount of this. So he says, this is how he described the business center for his plan voisin in, uh, for Paris from its offices come the commands that put the world in order. In fact, the skyscrapers are the brain of the city, the brain of the whole country. They embody the work of elaboration and command on which all activities depend. Everything is concentrated there. The tools that conquer time and space, telephones, telegraphs, radios, the banks, trading houses, the organs of decision for the factories, finance, technology, commerce. The business center issues commands. It does not suggest, much less consult. I thought that was very interesting high modernist domination of, I mean, everything, nature, humans, the, the world that they live in, it is all to be constructed according to the plan. And there shall be no question or other comment. And I mean, he's, he's not wrong that that's what is happening. It's just the fact that he thinks it's good. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's got this interesting ability to sort of correctly identify and diagnose what we would consider problems. Um, and he just goes all in on them. Yeah. Um, and further in the passage, uh, it says in condemning the rot, uh, which was translated from la pourriture of the contemporary city, its houses and its streets. He singles out the factory as the sole exception. So he thinks that everything in cities is bad except for factories, which are good. <laughs> We're back to Taylorism and, and later on, Scott says throughout his career, Le Corbusier is clearly aware that his kind of root and branch urban planning requires authoritarian measures. A Colbert is required. Do you know who he's talking about? I don't know who that is. Colbert. Or is that a title? I don't know. Um, I think it is a title. Can you highlight it? Oh, there. Colbert. Um, of course, all I can it's find a surname. is Stephen Colbert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it is meaning like a what's the word? like an alderman kind of thing the sort of director of the area so it's uh, either a title or it's referring to a person who held a position of that kind of power yeah but he says on the title of his major work one finds the words this work is dedicated to authority yep like authority <laughs> you could not be more straightforward with it i i yeah. just found what uh the word colbert comes from by the way oh okay uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert was a French statesman who served as the first minister of state from 1661 until his death in 1683 under the rule of King Louis XIV. Um, he had a massive impact on the country's politics and markets. Um, and there's, yeah, Colbertism or Colbertism, really strong top-down mercantilism uh, and state planning. Got it. Yeah. And for those who aren't super historically inclined louis the 14th was the sun king extremely like authoritarian king that kind of centralized the state a lot which makes sense that yeah his minister would have been an idol for le corbusier um and it also kind of i think goes back to the lewis mumford thing of worshiping the sun or elevating the sun as something that's the most important 
is kind of a hallmark of extremely authoritarian societies. You know, they they center everything around the sky or the the single star, and from that follows the rest of hierarchical society coming down from a single ruler. So Lord Corbusier exhibited designs for the League of Nations, lobbied the Soviet elite to accept his new plan for Moscow. So it was Moscow. Um, and did what he could to get himself appointed as the regulator of planning and zoning for the whole of France and to win the adoption of his plan for the new Algiers. So yeah, he basically just shopped around to different authorities trying to get them to let him, you know, demolish a whole city and rebuild it like his drawings. And I think his fascist cop brain ideology is pretty well summed up by this, you know, 80s cop movie ass quote, which is uh how many of those 5 million those who came from the countryside to make their fortune are simply a dead weight on the city, an obstacle, a black clot of misery, a failure of human garbage. Shove everyone into the cities and then design the world around them to control them the way that you want. Um, all right, so now we get into Brasilia, which is supposed to be a like a modernist plain city project, you know, designed after the principles laid out by Le Corbusier. Oh, and I, I guess we didn't really go over the those principles, um, but we'll we'll cover them here. Uh, it'll it'll become pretty obvious what the principles were from our description here. Uh, so the city was built at the behest of President is it Juscelino Kubitschek? Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Kubitschek, yeah. Okay, so he was a Sokdem president during the fifties who wanted to create a new administrative capital of Brazil, uh, like Tour said. Uh, designed by Lucio Costa, who was a student of Le Corbusier. It's an administrative city, and he wanted it closer to like the actual center of Brazil as opposed to the coast, uh, which, uh, and he wanted it to not be weighed down by the problems of the older cities of Brazil, uh, by which I th- think he probably just meant like the slums. Yeah, uh, Rio de Janeiro being busy and having emerged naturally rather than having been planned top down considered it just a waste bin of human garbage and hated it yeah so because the city was located far from the coast and far from other cities that existed the land was owned entirely by the state which means the normally unrealistic requirements of a modernist planned city which has to be built from scratch were actually met for once so yeah in theory the plan was utopian and it was definitely modernist. Uh, the The housing was egalitarian, so everything was like organized into these giant uh, apartment blocks called super quadra. They had three hundred sixty units each, and they were supposed to house up to twenty five hundred people. Uh, the traffic flow in the city was was maximized and optimized, and. Uh, that reminded me of this roommate that I used to have. We we always used to say maximize and optimize to make fun of him uh, because he would say either of those words like all the time, just about he basically used them to mean like doing something. The one time that sticks out that he, he did that was my mom gave me this box of of bowls, like weed bowls, 
and uh i i let him have one of them because there was like a ton of them most of them were made out of stone and they had like like a huge air hole in them that was like impractically large uh but so he told me one day when i came home uh hey i i maximized the airflow in your mom's bowl and when he showed it to me what he actually did was he just crumbled up a pipe screen and shoved it in the hole <laughs> that that is the opposite of maximizing <laughs> i don't understand like <laughs> even if you think that makes it better which i guess um a screen is going to be blocking airflow I, okay you, this is not <laughs> james scott let's talk about this book <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that just made me laugh thinking of that. So the the layout of Brasilia was based on clean, smooth lines. It it looks kind of like a crossbow. There's like a big central boulevard uh, that, I mean, obviously it's not vertical because it's on flat ground, but the picture is vertical. <laughs> and there's like a big like bow shape um, where all the buildings are. So there was that. Uh, there's spaces that are used for a single purpose that was one of the major principles of le corbusier he wanted cities to have a residential district and a commercial district and a business district and and no no mixing of those things so kind of like the like the sim city city skylines version of reality yeah you have your everything is blocked into a single purpose so residential and uh like there's a leisure section but you wouldn't have restaurants and shops near the leisure section because that's not what it's for and so everything is just broken up right so another thing the city center was like a big imposing monument a lot of le corbusier's designs he would take an existing city design and be like uh oh no there's residential space in the center of the city that's that's bad we need to replace that with big monuments there was one bit that said like he took a city center that that was like several hundred acres and made it into like a monument garden. I don't know that sounds it sounds wrong, but uh, that's that's how I remember reading it. But anyway, yeah, um, that's the one he describes as like if you wanted to meet someone there, it would be like meeting someone in the Gobi Desert, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, just this gigantic empty open space, and that's like designated spending time area. Except it's also right smack in the center of the administrative buildings, and so no one goes there for leisure. It is so it's just this massive set of green spaces that are empty that people don't use. Yeah, I don't even think they have like benches or anything. Like of the pictures that I saw, it was just like a big flat patch of concrete, and that was it. Yep, M- maybe a statue. Kind of funny to imagine him just like bringing a folding chair. And just plopping it in the middle of like, you know, a 200 acre patch of concrete being like, "Mm, yes, this is wonderful. (laughs) Okay. And the last two, uh, like design principles were the roads were for automobile traffic only. So there was no like mixed use roads and there were like huge setbacks for green space. So like all the buildings have giant yards around them, but again, it's not like, you know, pretty gardens or anything. It's like grass. Yeah, and they he did that on the basis of calculations, right? Like, um, yes. healthy citizens need X number of square footage of uh, recreation and green space in order to live comfortably. And so that's how they broke up the city, was based on how many people they think will be living there. And that was, of course, a fixed determined number in advance. Um, they allocated yeah, it was 577,000. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Not a drop more. I don't know how they expected to make that work <laughs> and not grow beyond that. Like, if you wanted it to be a functional city, why would it not grow? I guess the high modernist thing is control every aspect of their lives. So, of course, you're going to be controlling things like reproduction. But Yeah. Uh, Birth control and the water supply. <laughs> yep. Um, so, uh, it definitely departed from the design and culture of Brazil's existing cities. So they, they were successful in that sense. Uh, it was different. <laughs> um, it was so a rejection, rather, yeah. Yeah. So rather than something like the favelas of Rio, which are, if you don't know the, like, if you ever see those pictures of like the giant slums in uh, Brazil, those are uh, the favelas. They're like informal settlements. Um, so instead of that, residents would live in those super quadros. Um, but the benefits turned out to be kind of spurious, actually, surprisingly. Uh, so people who lived in the city as originally built said that in Brasilia, there is only work and home. And they coined a term, which I think is pronounced Brasilite, for the condition of living in the city as if it were an illness. Yep. They talked about so, how you only, you only get to meet someone if you either see them at work or you go to their apartment. And so like all mm -hmm. of this green space that's designated for leisure and like single use uh, relaxation zones, they just don't get used. It's work and home. Which I kind of feel like, I mean, obviously in pandemic times, we're only at home, but I feel yeah. like um, even prior to that, we were kind of entering a de facto version of that based on just all space being privatized and like you go to work and if you don't have enough money to like go out, then you just go home and hang out and that's it. Yep. Um, let's see, uh, because the whole city was divided into single purpose blocks and because the blocks were separated by huge setbacks, uh, there was nothing even close to mixed use space. So like somewhere, like you said, where someone might stop and meet, uh, on the way to or from work. They said like all, all meetings had to be planned, which I'm yeah, sure right. Corbusier was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> and because the streets had no foot traffic, there were no street corners where people could have spontaneous meetings or gatherings, which makes the city feel dead or empty. So it's cars only. Although I, I did look at some, uh, some newer pictures of Brasilia and they have added, um, footpaths. So there's like. Oh, they've something added them like now. sidewalks. Yeah. Uh, completely spitting in the face of our high modernist overlords. I don't understand. <laughs> he is turning in his grave. <laughs> um, or maybe he's just like moving back and forth in a straight line in his grave because turning yeah, is 90 degree turns disorderly. <laughs> <laughs> so because the super quadra were nominally egalitarian, uh, they were all completely identical and had no character of any kind, not even a porch to decorate with some personality. Um, so one of the design characteristics was like they had floor to ceiling windows. Uh, so like you were kind of like it was I think the closest comparison would be like an ant farm, basically, like the whole side of the building, <laughs> like revealed everything that was inside. Yeah, which made obviously people feel kind of violated like they didn't have like a real private life but then again there was no porch so like you know even on those huge modernist apartment blocks 
that follow similar design principles where like everyone has the same unit if you have a porch you can like put some personality into it but they didn't have that so everyone just lived in a completely identical house which i also have to imagine it made it really hard to find someone's house um even if you've been there a bunch of times yeah they, they talk about that at one point um like all the streets look the same. There's no landmarks. There's nothing mm-hmm. to help uh, direct you or guide your way. So unless you know the sort of systematized top-down letter number grid system that they named the streets and everything with, you would have a hell of a time getting anywhere. Yeah. They also said the streets didn't, they weren't like named anything. They just had these really complex acronyms that like hardly anyone could memorize, which is, uh, I guess pretty characteristic. Yep. The crazy thing to me, though, the city was built in 41 months uh, by around 60,000 construction workers. And uh, those workers who I think this uh, this might be a slur, but uh, they're called pandangos or condangos. Yeah. Which supposed to be translated to... Um, like an undifferentiated worker, like someone with no personality or soul or something like that, which I mean, it makes it just sound like a, a slur. Apparently they took it back and Kubitschek kind of celebrated them. Yeah. Kubitschek's plan was to like make it, this was the new birth of the Kandangos as a class that now they would be respected because they took part in the, the building of our glorious new city. Yeah. I wonder how much that actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, those construction workers that built Brasilia, they created their own settlements on one hand because the settlements, the temporary settlements that were built for them to live while they built the city were, like, not adequate. Um, But also because the intent was for them to leave when they were done, and they didn't want to do that. Uh, They lived there for several years, and they're like, well, we're just going to stay. Uh, so they managed to make their settlements permanent, both by the sympathies of Kubitschek, uh, you know, and his celebration of them as heroes, but also because of their collective power as a potential voting block, according to Scott, you know, uh, who said that, you know, they had a, a functioning democracy. And so a group like them who operated as like a class could potentially, you know, get someone else elected if you didn't um make concessions to them and so as of 1980 75 percent of the population of brasilia lived outside the the planned city um in those unplanned settlements created by the workers yeah it's, he mentioned that uh at one point something like 70 percent of the city's intended occupation is like as high as it ever got for the actual like the super quadra areas mm-hmm. so you have all this detailed uh super minute planning and then most people just live outside completely outside of your planning and you never actually get even the city itself um to meet like your view your vision so oh yeah i forgot the other thing about the super quadra apparently someone like asked a bunch of nine-year-old kids to draw a picture of home and these were kids who lived in the super quadras um and they just drew like the traditional house shape with a pitched roof and chimney and windows and doors. Uh, so they did not think of it as home. 
Yeah, none of the children drew apartment buildings. So despite the yeah. fact that they lived there all their lives. Yeah. I wonder what the result would be if you ask like kids in New York or something to to do the same thing. Yeah, that would be an interesting question. Cuz he, he he did say it was like part of deeply embedded cultural uh conceptions of home. So maybe that's part of it and it's not necessarily because of the super quadra thing, but I mean if you if you live in a part of a square box uh with no personality, uh probably does have something to do with it at least. Yep. Back to the unplanned settlement. 75% of the population lives there. And unfortunately, uh that part of the city is stratified like the typical Brazilian city. So the majority of the populace lives in slums around the periphery and they commute long distances to work in the center, which is where the wealthy live. So even that that limited egalitarian dream of everyone having the same size home and you sort of break down those social and class distinctions goes straight out the window when <laughs> the plan is not quite followed. Yeah, I wonder what the class of the people who still live in the super quadras is like. I I would imagine that the the rich people like moved out to the unplanned city where they could get a bigger house. Yep. But I don't know, maybe the appeal of being near work makes up for it, but no cuz then he talked about the lack of mixed space. So, yeah, I, I have to imagine that they probably all went to get a, you know, a mansion in the unplanned settlement. Yeah. With how like poorly successful these designers were. They had this grand dream. They had all the land and it was like built on a plateau. So it basically was flat. You didn't have to work around a river or anything. They had everything going for them and it still worked out so poorly with regard to how they actually wanted it to go. I almost feel bad for them. Like, I don't <laughs> think they were in the right or doing a good thing with it, but it just worked. It just didn't work. And they tried. <laughs> it's hard to have your them. dreams crushed any harder than that. Like, yeah. you get there, you have all the resources in the world given to you. And you just fail utterly. <laughs> and it's crazy. like known to this day as this miserable place to live that has like a social disease named after it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the conclusion of this section by Scott is it was successful in uh, doing something different, but not successful in its intended purpose of creating a new way of living. Mm -hmm. or inspiring others to take up that new way of living right uh so he has a a very small section right after this about uh chandigarh which is another planned city this is the one that uh le corbusier actually got to design right yes yeah so it was the the new capital of punjab um and it was originally being designed by Matthew nowicki who was a Polish designer. Um, and while he was in the middle of it, he died suddenly in a plane crash, which uh, to me, very suspicious, especially because it was caused by uh, bad oil. Like there was a bunch of like sludge or something in the oil that caused an engine failure, which is the, one of the most common ways to sabotage a machine. And then of course, right after this, Le Corbusier, uh, the extreme authoritarian uh, nut job gets the job. So maybe maybe some involvement there. Um, I don't know. But uh, so it was built at the behest of the first PM of the independent uh, Indian nation, 
uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, who chose Le Corbusier to pick up where Massey left off. And Le Corbusier's role in the design was to take out all the interesting and humanizing shit about a city and turn it into another big, stupid, empty line drawing. So (laughs) (laughs) there were like curves in the design that he removed. There were areas that would have caused crowds. And uh, there were footpaths, and he took all of those out because he's a simple-minded, misanthropic freak. <laughs> and so, again, what, what happened was that the planned city remains completely dead and is surrounded by an unplanned city that's, like, lively and has people actually living there. <sighs> Poor Le Corbusier. Do you know where <laughs> his name comes from, by the way? Yes, I did look that up. It's, like, basically a like, tweak of his father's name. Yeah, his grandmother's last name is what I found. Oh, okay. Um, I I spent a bunch of time looking into it because it doesn't mean anything. Like, Corbusier is not a French word. And, but yeah, he just took up a weird modification of some member of his family's name. Le Corbusier. Yeah. Is is the original. Yeah, it says it's his maternal grandfather's name. Mm. That's off Wikipedia, though, so could be wrong. I don't know. So that is the tale of Le Corbusier and his planned cities. And now we're getting to the part that you were most interested in, which is the critique of modernist urban planning by Jane Jacobs. So do you want to kick us off with your notes? Yeah, I guess so. So what I find really interesting about this whole approach that Jacobs takes is that it's it's liberal minded, you know, like um, she talks about how a more desirable city has things like uh, crowds and multi-use areas, and that leads to things like increased property value. And so it's like very clearly at its root, uh, a liberal critique and perspective. And at the same time, it's arguing for a bottom-up social order that doesn't require policing or institutionalized order um, for things to work. And so you've got this like really interesting intersection between the obvious liberal uh up like provenance of her views and the conclusions that she makes which are almost anarchist and i find that really interesting yeah what happened to those liberals yeah right let's get some of those back so the book that he's talking about by jane is the death and life of great american cities which scott says is not the first critique of modernist urban planning uh but certainly the best one. So he says there's like an immediate apparent difference between Jacob and the rest of the modernists where they approach the city from the administrator's view from far and above the city with no regard to life on the street level. Uh, She does the opposite. She starts from the street level. And um, I think part of this is he mentions that she was involved in like organizing campaigns against types of zoning that she disagreed with. And stuff like that. So she was like involved in urban planning politically instead of, you know, the Le Corbusier way of just like shopping around to different authoritarians and trying to get, you know, them to let her demolish the whole city. So she starts from the human level and she centers her critique on the fundamental confusion between function and visual order. So straight lines and neatness uh, mean nothing in terms of functional use for residents, which is like the fundamental mistake that the urban modernists make um so for me that made me think about like the typical messy desk um yeah 
there's like there's all these studies that I've seen. I mean, I haven't read a lot of them because I don't have time for that, but um they supposedly show that people with messy desks are smarter or more productive or some shit like that. But I think the truth is more likely that the desks aren't really messy, they're just functional and ordered according to use. And so people who obsess over the visual appearance of their desk are devoting all this mental energy to make their desk less functional so that it looks better. Yeah. Which makes them less productive. And you get people with like super messy desks that look utterly chaotic, but they can find things in there without hesitation. They know where things are. They know where everything is. Um, And so the idea that just because it looks disorderly means that it is. um, So that's one of the big things that Jacobs rails against. Um, it's, she's got some burns in there, stuff like the, uh, highly complex ordered systems only look disordered to the untrained and ignorant. Um, <laughs> and, and Scott talks about that. He's like, when you actually look at the inside of, uh, like a living creature or the, like a arrangement of plants or something, or the inside of an engine, um, you have all these really complex interconnected moving parts, pipes and wires and fancy things going on, uh, a highly complex arrangement of leaves on a a plant or parts of a flower or something. Uh, And if you don't know what's going on, you might say, well, that is clearly chaos and disorder. But then when you actually understand what's going on, it looks different to you. You start Mm -hmm. to recognize the patterns and the order that's actually contained in there. And so the only reason that someone would look at something like a city and go, that is chaotic and a mess. It's because they don't know any better. They don't understand the actual order. They're untrained. And I love that because like Le Corbusier goes so far out of his way to say that straight lines are the only thing that accounts as actual order. And Jacobs goes, you don't understand cities then. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that kind of burn where, you know, it's just like uh, simultaneously demonstrating that you understand something and the person who has been making all of these great appeals to how perfect their knowledge is doesn't know shit. <laughs> yeah. And like, worst of all, when it's someone like Le Corbusier doesn't know shit and also thinks that he has the right and intelligence and um, technique or what, what's the word I'm trying to say? Uh, expertise uh-huh. to dictate his views to everyone else. Right. Oh, this was another a good burn, I think. Jacob speculates that the utopian city planner's compulsion to create neat orderly cities stems from an unsuitable aim of converting cities into disciplined works of art. I really like that. Yeah. Everything's just about aesthetics at root. It's not about function. It's not about how things actually work or are in the real world. It's about like visual aesthetic. Yeah, that that's something that always interests me is uh getting into like some of the psychology of people like this, like people that I will never understand, you know. Um and that I think that makes sense out of a lot of what they think. So Jacobs brings up more recent innovations in city planning, which used uh newer statistical techniques and the advent of input output tables, which are something that socialists are big fans of, uh, for you know central or decentral planning um rosencron and i were talking yesterday about uh what's that guy's name cockshot okay yeah who supposedly proved that the labor theory value is correct using input output tables and uh some 
uh specific oh lee Lee and tiff inversions or something like that like some specific matrix algebra technique that's that's what i thought of when i read this part but uh so uh the way that these techniques were applied in city design was basically for the optimization of crude metrics like square feet of shopping space or number of vehicles traveling across a road per minute yeah which i think are still used sometimes it's such a weird idea like you are planning for a city you have this scientific theory that says that healthy people need x square footage of shopping space and so you zone for that and then that's like the end of your planning for it like it's almost irrelevant what kind of shopping is there what matters is that we have our theory that says that all you need is certain square footage of shopping space and like doesn't it matter what is available what kind of stores and what kind of shopping is done but I, there's just no discussion of that. Yeah, and it also, you know, there's a good hearts law. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Right. Yeah. Um, which he mentions some some problems with uh, that sort of uh, metric, like the shopping space one, um, because they're trying to get this like pretty exact number. They end up creating like state created monopolies of like grocery stores and such which basically means that like you know everyone has to use this one designated shopping space as opposed to a real city where you know if if one grocery shop is like better or more convenient than another then uh people will go to that instead and you figure something else out to do with the rest of the space so yeah she continues uh she expands her view of public city in terms of city design which this part was really interesting to me i've i haven't really heard any of this stuff before um so rather than safety being an outcome of police or cops or pigs or wannabe pigs um it comes from like seemingly more abstract factors so the ones that she mentions are a system of implicit and voluntary constraints, which is kind of vague, but uh, I think it becomes clearer later on. Um, a clear demarcation between public and private space, and most importantly, an active population in the streets. Um, and I would I would just add like a lack of like environmental collective trauma, uh, it, yeah. which you know in slums you ha- you have like mass deprivation and neglect which like causes collective trauma and uh trauma leads to you know increased violence or sensitivity um or what have you um but i mean i think i guess that's just outside the scope of this scott talks at one point about like some um projects that were tried in like urban housing development with like the rectangular lawn and how everyone hated it Uh, and you have people sometimes being yeah, people being forcibly moved in there sometimes, um, just placed in this like hostile, alienating community. Mm-hmm. And it's all, of course, single use. He said you can't like buy a newspaper. There's nowhere to shop for anything because that's not what this area is for. It is a residential area. Yeah. Um, there's actually a really good video um, that I will, will recommend about trauma um by it it was done by vita from champagne sharks and when i looked at it 
the other day uh it didn't have a ton of views and i think it should get more so i'm gonna link it in the show description actually because uh it's great and it talks about collective trauma and uh social services and things like that and i i think she's gonna do more on the subject um because she uh she was educated in social work or got involved in social work but not like uh state social workers like she wasn't very clear on what what it actually was but she basically was like in the position to help people in high trauma environments and so she she has a lot of understanding of that uh subject but uh yeah that's that's the main reason i actually thought of that point uh was because it's pretty fresh in my mind but uh anyway <laughs> so uh jacobs also writes a series uh writes about a series of small but important public services like mi- like microservices provided by people who have uh like a passing familiarity to one another which what does she call it street street terms yeah street terms yeah people who are on street terms with one another um and especially by like small shop owners who you know are becoming increasingly rare today especially through the pandemic you know people not being able to keep their business above water and pay their rent uh we might end up with like uh most of those places being replaced by large corporations who are able to weather the storm um, yeah there's a little corner store right across from my place and they're in the process of being evicted they go there all the time and wow. it's just going to be gone it's turned into a 7-eleven or something more than likely the space is just going to sit vacant for years so like Ooh. good on you system you did great yeah so the the services that she's talking about are like trusting people that are just around you to like watch your child or a bike for a minute like to go to the bathroom or get a sandwich or something um or an example that i thought was really interesting that i've like never heard of before in my life which was uh there were certain shopkeepers in some neighborhoods where if you needed to leave a key for someone to get into your apartment because you were leaving um you could give it to a shopkeeper who would just have a drawer full of house keys or like spare keys um and you could just go and ask for it and they would you would be able to get into your friend's apartment have you ever heard of anything I, like that um i have heard of no like neighbors doing that for people but i've mm-hmm. never lived anywhere that um had a ton of businesses in and around the um, housing areas grew up in the suburbs. And now I live in, in a city, but with a lot of, it's just apartment buildings down my block other than that one little corner okay. store. Um, so if you lived on like a more main street, like an apartment above a store, I can see that dynamic emerging a little more readily, but it's not something that uh-huh. I've ever seen personally. I can't even think of like that happening in a TV show or anything yeah. that I would have seen, you know? Um, that's that's so, an interesting dynamic. So this sort of issue of public safety, um, and it's that happens as an aggregate of all these little social interactions, um, each of which is insignificant, but like in aggregate, they're huge. You have a lot of eyes watching the street at a given time, which makes it safe for kids to play there. And so they prefer to play there over like uh, larger designated areas like parks, which are a lot less safe. Um, that's one thing that Scott comments on. And all of this stuff. And also because they're more lively. Like there's more stuff happening on the street. Yeah. 
So all of this stuff, like you can't institutionalize it. You can't have, um, like go to your city government and an elect and commission of street safety to have a bunch of government suits stand on the street and watch things and replicate this dynamic. Like it's impossible. Pay like 300 people to walk down a street <laughs> all day. <laughs> so the only way that this works is, um, I don't remember what the exact wording was, but it's something like the social relations are part of the logic of the existing uh, relationships that are there. So like yeah. the business relationships have this uh, logic where they value having customers who want to come there and lots of people who feel safe. Um, and so it's embedded in the logic of how the area works and you can't just institutionalize that. One thing that was interesting is that they have no private commitments, so there's no formal contracts for it. And everyone involved is a non-specialist. No one is uh, a security guard or um, someone who's paid to watch. They're all people that are there for other reasons um, and have their own business of some sort. And that they are then able to act as these non-specialists contributing to the aggregate safety. He also talked about how her how her gender might have factored into this understanding. Yes. I had a whole thing about that because it's a very weird passage. What did you think about that? Like, do you think Scott's right that those things that he talked about are factors of the gender? Um, I mean, I guess it's probably a little essentializing, but I don't think he's completely wrong that um, men probably are more likely to view things in an instrumental way. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I Having that sort of business-oriented, single-purpose mindset that makes the yeah. sort of urban planning especially, easier. Especially the safety stuff, because I, I don't think men think of safety very much at all. That's true. Yeah, they just don't really consider that. We'll just pull out my gun, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> but just the, like, everyone's heard the dynamic of, I don't feel safe walking home down that street at night. And the men in the room go, oh, I just had never even considered it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, maybe there is something to that. Like, and it's always when the, when the street is empty, isn't it? Yep. So yeah. So one of the things she talks about is how these areas are like intrinsically desirable. Like people want to go mm -hmm. there because there's a lot of things to do there. It's mixed use areas. A lot of people live there and also it's shopping. And that's the areas that she talks about mainly. Um, and because those areas are intrinsically desirable, you're going to have more people there which makes them more safe and also successful by liberal and capitalist metrics. That was the um, like land value uh, argument. Mm -hmm. But all of this happening just from the bottom up, from I have a multi-use district and people want to be there and everything else in terms of like social cohesion and safety just follows from that as long as people are on sidewalk terms. And there's that whole trauma issue you mentioned, but- yeah, like yeah. it just sort of emerges. Um, and that couldn't possibly be replicated by single-use districts being planned from above. Yeah. They uh I don't I don't remember if it was Scott or Jacobs um saying this, but um they were talking about how these types of communities are also more resilient, like having a mix of different um types of buildings like you know, business versus residential or, or both in one building um, and different like ages of buildings and businesses and residents um, yeah. leads to them being more resilient. So if there's an economic downturn, like we're going through now, 
they're more likely to survive uh, because, you know, there's more established one businesses, um, you know, that might be like neighborhood fixtures and uh, more diverse things tend to be less brittle, um, much like the the forest from the first chapter. Um, the more stuff you take out and make uniform, um, the harder it is for it to survive unexpected factors. Uh, yeah. Or catastrophes. So I've got a quote written down here, which is neat. Um, I think this was something Jacob said specifically. It might've been Scott, but, uh, she said cities have the capability of providing something for everybody only because, and only when they are created by everyone. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of this, yeah, it's that opposite perspective, bottom up instead of top down, almost like a radical democracy view of everyone having a say and certainly not one dictatorial planner um, asserting from above. Yeah. The bottom up thing I think makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah. Especially for a city, like people understand what, they need in their own place than you know someone who's never been there or doesn't live there does generally anyway um yeah the the long-term residents there's concerns about like people just moving in and changing things but uh yeah people who have lived there and um so another thing that i was thinking about with the um diverse buildings aspect is uh i i recently did a an episode of the show about housing policy um and it was about like nimbys versus emb's yeah uh, who you know are both both bad in their own way but uh this one made me think of the yimbys where like they basically want to like get rid of all the buildings that they can to build new housing um yeah which would make everything very uniform like uniformly new Although, according to them, it would be market rate for low-income people, which made no sense to me. I I don't understand how that's supposed to work. If it's market rate, it's not affordable. But anyway, um, the point is I think their plans would make communities very uh, brittle and not able to weather downturns. But... uh, yeah, I think think this stuff about zoning laws is, is very interesting, too. Like, that's one of those things you never really think about um a lot of it at least in my area is controlled by like the county boards um they decide Mm -hmm. how things are zoned um i I live in a suburb of washington dc um and yeah like the county boards of supervisors the main thing that they do is uh make decisions about zoning and it's just one of those things where you kind of never think about it until someone explains to you why it matters and like what the effects of it are because it just seems so innocuous scott mentioned that um jacobs was like involved in activism and campaigns to stop the changing of zoning laws in her area right so that's kind of neat sort of putting that view into practice and i don't know if that's (laughs) most compelling practice that i've heard of but i can see why she focuses on it especially since the like very nature of the zoning plays a serious role in her view of the city and how it should work and how it could be better. Yeah. So I've got one last thing here. 
So do you remember the end of the chapter? Um, she talks about this sort of language um, metaphor. So I do you do linguistic stuff. I, I have some passing interest in linguistics and it made me think of a bunch of things. But um, I have a small amount of knowledge about it. Um, I I learned Esperanto for a little bit in like sixth or seventh grade, I think. I was in one of those fucking gifted programs and that was one of the things that we did was learn Esperanto but um, even at that age I was like this is kind of dumb like who the fuck speaks Esperanto <laughs> uh, yeah. so I never really learned much of it well that's good because I also, now thought, it was I, weird. About... I also thought it was weird that it was supposed to be like a, a universal language uh, but it's basically based off of like Latin and Spanish it's yeah like, like so five there's no European like Chinese languages. influence or anything like <laughs> yeah there, there's a couple that tried and do better than that. Lojban has Mandarin loan words and a couple, but n- none of them are particularly good at avoiding like cultural centrism, Eurocentrism. Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm glad that you're not like a linguistics expert because I'm going to okay, talk good. about a couple <laughs> linguistics things and I'm probably going to get the terms wrong. And people that really know linguistics hate when you do that. So, okay. Um, so she makes a comparison between the development of a city to the development of a language. So she's not completely mm-hmm. opposed to um, any kind of planning. Uh, she doesn't say that you should just take your hands completely off, but you can't sort of put your own plans into effect with no regard to what the people naturally do. And so the best you can really hope for is to nudge it in a more desirable direction with sensible and low impact uh, reforms and changes kind of thing. Um, what I thought was really interesting about that is the process of natural language evolution is also a system of immense complexity when left to human devices, but then it stops being when you develop writing. Um, and what I find interesting is that most language reforms come from uh, post, I, I don't know of any pre-writing languages that have had significant reforms come through, but once you have writing and then you have like an institution that wants to uh, standardize and uh, universalize a language. Um, that's when things get set in stone and they stop changing. They stop evolving and going through the natural process of uh, language evolution that languages normally go through. Um, hmm. And so just the very existence of writing puts it into this artificial frozen state. And I have to wonder, like, to what extent does her view on how much, uh, what would I call it? Like, the kinds of reforms and planning that she think is acceptable or good um, would not Uh like freeze and make it um, artificially change things in a way that wouldn't be expected um, to the extent that you think that those uh, natural ways that people organize themselves in cities are desirable. um, It doesn't take much in a language, for example, to freeze everything. So, the the example and let me think. I had a couple examples thought of. So, the older a language is without having developed writing, the more complex it gets. Um, I believe, and I shouldn't get this wrong. Anyone who knows about linguistics, log off now. Um, <laughs> That's the you, Navajo Anna. language. Yeah. The, the Navajo language um, is known for being extremely complex. Um, if I recall correctly, it takes like thirteen years for someone to or it's said that it takes 13 years to become fully competent in the language, Um, which like children can use it and engage with it and express themselves in that. But like proper mastery 
just doesn't come until later because it's so complex. And that language didn't develop writing of any sort until the 1930s when it was artificially given uh, orthography. Um, someone created a Latin-derived alphabet for it and sort of said, you can write using this now kind of thing. But it wasn't a natural development. Um, and to my knowledge, the writing that did come to exist mainly came from, originally started up as like ledgers, um, keeping track of things like grain. Um, that's where writing systems really emerge in normal languages. And so you just didn't have that um, in the Navajo speaking areas. And now, of course, Navajo that is one thing that I frozen. do know a bit about. Um, okay, there's there's somewhat of a historical debate about whether um, ledgers came first, or uh, like basically whether writing was created by the state or created um, by uh, like from the bottom up, basically, and adopted by the state. But there's not really strong, very strong evidence one way or the other. I don't think it's not like there's you know, writing samples from before states could have possibly existed or anything like that. Sure. But anyway. Okay. So yeah, I, I'm focusing on this because I, I find it interesting with the metaphor, but at the same time, it's, it's just an analogy to language. So mm -hmm. um, if languages are sort of frozen in time uh, and stopped from evolving through the introduction of language, um, you can see that that's what's desired from a high modernist perspective. You have your design and plan and you put it into play and you don't want it changing after that point, or at least the high modernists who are pushing that don't want it to be changed. Um, but then when you have someone who is actually arguing for the positive nature of people's self-organizations in the natural way um, that doesn't happen when you have a bunch of top-down planning, and you also have Jacob saying things like she really values the uh, sort of endless process of change. It's all that stuff that Scott says about uh, she's not this form of conservative thinking that just everything that is as it is, is good. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. the biggest difference is like that she doesn't think everything is good, but like trying to impose things from the top down is like worse, almost no matter right. what. So I guess, what do you think um, these kinds of changes and smaller scale bottom up modifications and plans where people are given the power to actually make it themselves. What do you think that would look like in terms that would actually work? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess like the thing you made me think of with the writing analogy is just the idea of zoning laws in the first place. Like I, there's probably no fixing them because once you say that like this space is for this, then that like, that's kind of it until you change the law, which there's always resistance to. Yeah. And I guess yeah. generally like you want, especially like human spaces to be something that you can always change if it stops working. <laughs> well, that's an interesting yeah, uh, uh, connection. Just, I think I, I think I lost track of the question though. <laughs> no, no, th that's, that's interesting. Like my whole thought was the development of language, uh, as soon as you bring in writing, that's what freezes things. And then in the city side, if we're thinking about things like zoning laws, as soon as you develop the written law, that's what freezes things. So it's yeah. writing both times. Conclusion, writing is bad. And I wonder if it's like, I don't know if you have like read anything about this, but I wonder if it's writing specifically or like writing prescribed by like an academy. So like, uh, 
I think it was in the episode with Sam. We talked about the Academy Frances, which is yes. like a centralized authority um, that supposedly like determines proper French, essentially. Um, and so th- the way to write French would be determined by them. But in English, we don't really have that. Although we do have like dictionaries sort of fill that purpose because there's a, several prescriptive English dictionaries. Yeah. So the way, and I, I haven't, I'm not an expert in this. But the way that I understand it as going is when you have an institutional prescription, like the Académie Française, Académie Française, I shouldn't, that really like aggressively cements it. But even without such a um, formal institutionalized uh, set of rules, it still does restrict the sort of language development that happens as long as that written communication is happening over long distances. Because locally, hmm. dialects continue to evolve. Um, people change right. how they speak in the sort of local sphere. But then you have this thing where people speak one way and then write a different way, such that it becomes more intelligible to people that aren't in their local area and uh, demographic who have that shared dialect. I also wonder if a lot of it has to do with like like the fact that we're most of us are employed now so a huge part of our use of language is in the workplace where you're dictated a certain way of speaking more than you are informally because like definitely there's more slang in informal parts of society like i think maybe not the best example but like slang for drugs evolves like so quickly like there's always new words for various drugs and I'm sure part of it is like there's no specific like accepted term that comes from above um, that you're supposed to use. But I guess also just that you want to be kind of more um, surreptitious about it. Yeah, um, I was just thinking that like there are certain communities that use things like euphemism um, and slang terms more than others in Mm -hmm. more of a utilitarian way. It's not so much a product of natural language evolution than it is a the surreptitious nature of it you're doing it for a reason you know yeah what i'm thinking is i don't know why i thought of this example but like scottish people for example you have scots um which is essentially english but it's like more or less uh intelligible depending on how it's written or spoken and you can write it you can write uh there were poets that wrote in scots rather than in like conventional english and it's mostly intelligible with English, but at the same time, if a Scottish person who speaks that way um, went onto like an American website and typed that way, like Reddit has Scottish people Twitter, and it's just people talking that way and making fun of people, or not making fun, it's it's positive, um, but commenting on those um, that way of speaking and writing, and of course, all the comments are, I don't understand a damn thing that's being said here. So of course you have to modify. So even it, it almost doesn't matter how far the local dialect goes in terms of intelligibility in the spoken word, you will always adapt and modify your writing in a way that's uh, intelligible to the speakers. And so then you don't need an Académie Française to be dictating how to use the written language because you're forced to do that just by the way that um, distance and different dialects develop. So... There were several comparisons in this chapter of the planned city to the factory, mm-hmm. which on its surface is like a you know pretty interesting comparison. 
Le Corbusier said that he liked the factory because it was basically like one mind deciding like the form and operation of it and stuff like that. But I think the comparison goes even a little deeper than they discuss in the book. One of the main appeals of the factory and like one of the main reasons it like supplanted the workshop, which is how how industry uh, was done prior to the domination of factories. Uh, One of the reasons that it dominated was the ability to surveil workers and keep them from slacking off. So that means there is a uniformity of purpose in the factory. It's like a single use district of the city. Like you only do work there and you only do the work that the bosses tell you. Um, So there's like no socialization or rest um, other than like, you know, what the boss might mandate, you know, during like year 15 or whatever, Um, because that would lower the utilization rate of the factory um, and make it less productive in the eyes of the manager. Uh, But in reality, on, on the ground, these activities can make workers more productive if you have more time to rest you know if you if you want to fuck off from work you're not gonna work as well as you would if you're like completely committed to it if you're distracted or kind of tired you're gonna do like lower quality work or lower quantity work like no one no one does their best work by keeping their nose to the grindstone all day and contrary to the views of the planners workers can actually come up with good improvements to like both the process and the product that they're making or participating in if they're like allowed time to think about it so if they were like allowed to socialize and rest um freely then it would probably make things work better than they do in a factory and i think that relates to kind of what they were saying about cities yeah it's Given the people, if the people have the ability to sort of contribute to the area that they live in and make their own decisions, that was um, Jacob's whole argument about the slums, that you can't just like top down declare this area to be raised to the ground and then you'll just eradicate that poverty or whatever. Um, As long as the sort of conditions in the surrounding area are okay and people are given the ability to make their own decisions, this process of deslumification happens and the areas and conditions improve. And yeah, I don't know how much I really agree with Jacob's assessment that like the best way to deal with slums is to just leave them and let the people work it out. But I do like the idea that it's the people at that point making the decisions. And to the extent you're pulling yourself out, it's, you know, the people doing it themselves, not someone just dictating from on high. Yeah. I mean, I would say the main thing that she's missing is that like the state, which I want to make sure that people don't think I'm just saying the government, like the state as in the government and business form this big giant rationing system that we're all subject to in modern society. And slums are basically like one of the products of uh, class-based rationing. And so the thing that would allow the slums to flourish and become like not slums anymore would be if those people were not subject to rationing based on their lower class and in combination with like having their the capacity to decide things for themselves obviously um i think that would be the thing that lets them develop beyond slums so like even if they even if there's no like zoning laws or anything like that that are 
imposed on them um they still aren't like completely free and the reason for that is because you know resources are under the control of this higher order of class division. sort of a like a positive freedoms and negative freedoms dynamic you can take the restrictions yeah. and zoning uh issues off like those restrictions off of people but that doesn't necessarily get you there but yeah it doesn't seem like jacob's right. analysis really has room for that it is a, a liberal one at the end of the day yeah i mean good luck talking about something like that too a liberal yeah. who's not like ready for it <laughs> oh and i guess we didn't really mention a lot about how like so many of these modernists talked about like raising the slums basically like how the slums are it's like uh like how fascists think of homelessness now it's yeah. just this problem to be dealt with through like eradication essentially forced relocation uh, into your super quadra or whatever if yeah that. or not even that yeah. yeah yeah it seems like a lot of them are just like well just you know see ya whatever yeah, I guess Le Corbusier has his La Pourriture thing. Like, if you view them as as garbage, as rot, then yeah. you're going to treat them accordingly. All right. Well, that's I think that's all I have. And uh sounds like that's all you have as well. So did you want to talk about your upcoming channel a little bit? Sure. Okay. Uh, so I have a YouTube channel that I am trying to create. Um, it's going to be my project that I'm working on right now is audiobook recordings of the entirety of Davide Torcato's The Method of Freedom, which is an Errico Malatesta reader, uh, chronologically ordered. So the earliest stuff is from early in his life and the later stuff is near his death. Um, and so I've got, I think, five works through and only one of them is uploaded. So I don't have anything to share right now. But if anyone's interested in some Malatesta audiobooks in the future, keep an eye out. And you said you're trying to get them on Audible too, right? I'm thinking about that. Yeah. And mm, really that motivation is more getting it to like the technical standards, like a baseline of listenability. Gotcha. Where if I okay. could theoretically get it onto Audible's program, but what I do plan on doing uh -huh. is uploading a bunch of it to Audible Anarchist um, and LibriVox, which is a project for recording audiobook versions of public domain works. Cool. Well, Tura, thank you so much for uh, coming on and uh, reading this chapter with me. Thanks for having me. Um, any linguists in the audience? I apologize. <laughs> I think Sam and I actually talked about, um, I think he brought up the Inuit language having like a writing system created for it like fairly recently. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like the pattern is the longer a language goes without having a writing system, the more complex it gets. But then in the modern world, there have been a number of those languages that have had sort of writing imposed um, either as like a tool of imperialism or just out of practical uh, usage. And it's actually like desired and advocated for by the people. But a lot of the time it's not. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting story. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, I hope to have you on again sometime. Yeah, I'd like that. Hopefully I will have read Capital is Power by then. <laughs> yeah <laughs> alright everyone thanks for listening bye bye see you everyone